I think we're ready to start. Uh, I don't have those. They're okay. How's everybody doing this morning? Are you ready uh, for one more round today? All right. This one's going to be a little different, and then not so different. So. Uh, I'll just wait 20 more seconds. Okay. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you that you have worked these miracles that you have had this eternal plan from before creation to redeem us, that you know us, that you knew us, that you have drawn us to you, that you have made it possible for us to know you through your Son, through your Word. We thank you for giving us a reasonable mind that we can read your Scriptures, discern the truth of who you are through them. I pray that this time now will be profitable that we will through studying the saints of the past through your word that we will know you better that we will be able to proclaim your gospel more confidently for all these people here who hunger to know you and to know your word i thank you for them i pray that this is a time of edification and we pray all this in the name of your son and by the power of your spirit amen okay let us begin anew. So, uh, today I'm going to do things a little differently. And uh, just so that we, we cover lots of different subjects, uh, the first part of the class today is going to be a march through some early church history to look at how theological issues were dealt with in the early church how our understanding, how our uh, knowledge of who God is uh, came about in, in, in was taught from the beginning, but there were challenges to that and how the church responded to those challenges and how those responses inform the doctrine of our church, of the evangelical church today. And then from there, we're going to move into more of a, a theological approach as we look at the hypostatic union, which I know is uh, what Brandon was preaching on today. So, uh, well, let's, I'll, I'll take it as it comes. So, okay, so some of this right at the beginning I touched on briefly last week, and that is uh, some of the early heretical views of the church, uh, of, of who Christ and who the person of Christ was, is. So, when Christ ascended to heaven, the apostles began to write things down. And, and, and what they wrote down over time, uh, as they were written down, I should say, became what we call the canon of the New Testament. So the canon are the accepted books of the New Testament. There are other books 
that people try to claim are scripture. And there are reasons why we do not consider them scripture. And that is a whole other subject that I would be happy to talk about sometime. However, suffice to say that none of them at any time and at any place were accepted as scripture by the church at large. So there was always some little inroad that somebody was trying to make and then the church at large would say, no, this is not scripture. And there's a lot of other uh, earmarks that we can look at that say, no, these are not scripture. So that, that, but the point is, the canon was then written, the New Testament was written, and these books are slowly then being dispersed throughout the Roman world. Keep in mind, Jesus Christ lived in the Roman Empire at the very beginning of the, the history of the Roman Empire, shortly after it transitioned from a republic to an empire, and that's a whole other subject. Uh, and if you're ever wanting to study church history and Jewish history, that's actually a very worthwhile uh, area of study, is, is, the, Ro is Roman the, the transition from republic to empire. But anyway, I digress. So as these books, and I digress because I love Roman history, um, <laughs> so don't tempt me. Um, so as, uh, as these books are then being disseminated throughout the empire and they're being copied and being read in the congregations, people are having more and more access to the teaching of the apostles. What does it say in Jude that we received once for all? the teaching of the apostles. And so the books of the New Testament are that teaching that Christ taught his disciples. They and others, like Paul, became apostles, and it is their teaching through the scriptures that they wrote down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we have today. And so the church was then reading these, saying, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this. Did Jesus at any point say, this is the Trinity? No. But as we read through all of these scriptures, and then we say, well, what does the Old Testament say about this? Then we begin to get the full picture. But as the church is working its way through that, there are those who start to go astray. And this happens early on. In fact, we can see that starting to happen as the books are being written. So the, some of the last, some of the later books that are written uh, and dating of the New Testament books is another fun subject. Uh, but we're, you know, with reasonable assurance, we know that the epistles of John are later books. They're not written as early as Mark or some of the early epistles of Paul. They're later epistles towards what we would call the end of, of before the closing of the canon. And in those epistles, we begin to see we see John responding to false teachings of who Christ is. And so these false teachings were present in the time of the apostles, and they're going to remain present to this very day. And so it has been the struggle of the church, or the burden, I should say, of the church, to maintain a true understanding of who Christ is. What Brandon preached on today, or will preach on today, depending on when you're here, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that, like, like in Philippians 2, and we'll talk about that briefly, but Brandon goes, uh, expresses it at greater length. Uh, and that's 
it's so, you guys, this is, th I don't want this to sound condescending in any way because it's not intended that at all. But you guys are so lucky to have a pastor who loves you guys so much that he's willing to preach a passage like Philippians 2. Amen. So, uh, that is not uh, something that pastors often like to do because that's, it's a deep theological passage and you have to really wrestle with things. So, that is, we are fortunate to have that. So, the church is then grappling with, this is what the Bible says. Now these other people are starting to say some things that are contrary to what the Bible is saying. So, let's pause there and let's talk about a few of these early deviations. And I'm going to, or properly, we call them heresies. I know in some cases that's a dirty word because it sounds like, you know, the Salem witch trials or something like that. But you know, let's call it what it is. These are heretical views. These are improper and false views of who God is. And I will say now, I'm sorry for all the big words. That's the only apology you're going to get today. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's, it's par for the course. So we need to call them something, so here we go. I'll, I'll just mention a few of these briefly, and then we're going to camp on Arianism for a minute and move on. So, there's Ebionism. That is a false teaching that claimed that Jesus was a prophet, but was in no ways God. Many of the Ebionites were Jews who recognized that, who saw that Jesus was the Messiah, and, but they did not recognize that he was divine, that he was God, that he was the Son of God. Uh... This is not the totality of who the Ebionites were, but we also know them in, in Galatians as the Judaizers. They would be Ebionites. So there are other sects of Ebionites besides the Judaizers. The opposite side of that is what we call docetism. <clears throat> that comes from the Greek word that means ghost or apparition or illusion. And the docetics believed that Christ had no physical body, that he was a ghost that he was an apparition who walked the earth, and when he hung on the cross, it was just a ghost hanging on the cross. This is something that people taught back then, and we live in a town where people still teach this downtown. Okay, so this is very relevant to our church here in Mount Shasta. Another form, of, uh, like, uh, another related group to 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 the Docetics were the Gnostics, and I've mentioned them before. And now the Gnostics had a whole different cosmology, but their, the basic thrust is that all flesh, all earthly things, the physical world is corrupt and evil. And therefore Christ, and they were not quote-unquote Christians, even though they dressed things up in Christian language, uh, they had nothing to do theologically with Christians, they would, they would claim that Christ did not have a physical body because how could God be merged, as they would say, with what is corrupt and evil? So it is only the spirit world that is pure and good. And we also have those people here in Mount Shasta. So this stuff is very, very pertinent to who we are. Then you have another group called the adoptionists or adoptionism. And they believed that Jesus Christ was born a man and that because he was so good 
and so holy, God exalted him, and he became the Son of God. Which is not exactly the same, but pretty close to what Mormons believe. So, there's a lot of these things, and through all, of, there's a lot of these teachings, and through all of that, the church is having to chart its course. What does the Bible say? And for every single one of these false teachings, there is some part of the Bible that is going to explicitly refute that. So the church is saying, how do we chart the course where every part of Scripture is agreeing with every part of Scripture? And it is from that that we, they, we are going to say, okay, we can see that Jesus is God. We can see that he is the Son. We can see that he is separate from the Father. And so on, which we talked about last week. I won't talk about modalism. We've talked about that enough. But now I want to talk about Arianism. And this has nothing to do with Arians in terms of Germans or anything like that. The Arianism, when we talk about heresy and Christology, comes from, it, it, it derives its name from an Egyptian priest whose name was Arius. And so this is a teaching that was taught by Arius. And so we call it Arianism. So, just want to make that clear. Now, Arius is much more subtle in his approach. He is going to say that Jesus Christ is everything that the Bible says that he is. He is divine and he is God, except it's God with a little g and d divine with a little d. So he is of a similar, and we're going to get into this here, in, into the tall weeds here in a moment. He is of a similar nature to the Father, but the Father created him before all things, and then through the Son, all things were then created. But the way Arius liked to write hymns, and one of the refrains that he would have in his hymns constantly was the little line, there once was the time, I don't know what the tune actually was, there once was a time when Christ was not. So he, the Father and the Son were not eternally together in prehistory, in pre-eternity. At some point, there was no Son, and at some point, the Father creates the Son, and then they're together, and then at some point, the Son is going to create all things. Does that make sense? Do you see he's not quite God? And that is a very important distinction. How can there be, and we'll get to this later, but I will just pose the question, how can there be an eternal atonement, an eternal sacrifice from something that is not eternal? There is a problem there. And incidentally, even though there is no historical connection between the Arians and the Jehovah's Witnesses, their Christology is essentially the same Christology. So what the Arians taught, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. So again, this stuff is really relevant to us today, and it behooves us to know more about what these false teachings were, but also how does the church respond? Because the, the way the church responded 300 years after Christ might give us some clues through the Holy Spirit how the church can respond today. So what is that response going to be? I think I need to stand. <clears throat>
So the focal point of the debate between the Arians and the church is the use of two terms. And there's very little distinction between the two. One is homoousius and one is homoousius. Homoousius means same, emphasis on the same, same essence, same substance. Homoousius is, means similar essence or similar substance. If you've ever heard the phrase, there's only an iota of difference, has anyone ever heard that phrase? This is where it comes from. The only letter separating those two words is the Greek letter Yoda, not Yoda, the Star Wars guy. <laughs> Yota, the Greek letter, we say it iota, but in Greek you would say Yota. That is the only thing separating these two wor words, but between these two words represents the eternal Son of God, God himself, the second, son of, second person of the Trinity, and a created demigod. That one little letter is separating the two because what it's saying is the Father, what the church was saying is the Father and the Son have the exact same essence. That they are two distinct persons but they are united in their divine core essence, that they are both God. And the Arians are saying, no, they're similar. The Father and the Son are, are similar, but they are not the same. They may be distinct, but they're a further separation of distinction than what the, than what the Bible really reveals. And we can go into the scriptural evidence for that another time because it is it's a long process and I if actually so let let me let me pause here for a moment then and I don't know if this is the case with with anybody here but I'm going to talk about some of the early creeds in the church and because of associations with Catholicism or with or, or with orthodoxy, sometimes people throw, you know, don't like the creeds, they don't like talking about councils, church councils and stuff like that. And you, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because what those early creeds were, were the statement of faith. Just like this church has a statement of faith or a doctrinal statement, that was the doctrinal statement of the early church. They had to say something. This is what we're all going to agree on. So, and... These early, these two creeds we're going to talk about today, Nicaea and Chalcedon, the tradition that we're a part of, the, like the Southern Baptist Convention, they affirm these creeds explicitly. So this is not something that I'm saying, well, the Catholics like this, and we should look at it. I mean, this is something that is explicitly affirmed by the convention, okay? So I'm not off the reservation here, okay? <laughs> um, but, and and let, me, let me just add to that a little more. I will digress on one of my, my pep subject for one minute. And that is, I, I believe that the biggest difference between, let's just, I'll just say, use the term broadly, Protestantism and Catholicism and Orthodoxy, the three great traditions of Christianity, is not things like Mary or saints or even Pelagianism or anything like that. We differ on some of those things. But the biggest thing that we differ on is authority. 
who is the authority? For us, for our tradition, what, do, what, did, what, do we, what did they say in the Reformation? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. That is our authority. We have no authority other than God. In orthodoxy, they have two authorities. They have Scripture, and they have a high view of Scripture, and we have more in common with orthodoxy, I think, than we do with Roman Catholicism. But they also have an equally valid lineage of authority called tradition. So the Bible is authoritative, tradition is authoritative. And within tradition, they would say things like the creeds, things like the councils and stuff like that. But that has equal weight of authority to the Bible. And in Roman Catholicism, they would say there's a three-legged stool that they have for authority. They have the Bible, they have tradition, and then they have the magisterium, which is all the cardinals, and at the head of them is the pope. And so all three of those have equal authority in their church and all of the other differences that we may have come from that now I, and I'm I'll also go out on a limb here and say I, I'm a pretty ecumenical Christ, Christian I, I mean I, I love our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters I may disagree with them on a lot of things but there are a lot of believers in those churches part of what we can affirm and embrace with them though is the Trinity and is the hypostatic union. All three of those traditions affirm what we're gonna talk about today. So if you don't affirm those things, you're off the reservation completely. You are something, but you're not Christian. So, let's talk about what those are, the creeds. Let me read the Nicene Creed. It's in the text. And I'm not gonna talk about it in class, but if you look on the last page of the notes, I'm a huge fan of the, the Nicene Creed. Uh, on the last page of the notes, I presented it an argument of the creed, and I, I went through it, and for every line of the creed, I provide a lot of verses where those, each of those statements is, is backed up by Scripture. So, uh, let me just read this really quick. <clears throat> We believe, uh, so also let me say, the creed came about in the year three, uh, 325. The church convened a big council in Nicaea, which was opposite the Bosporus from Constantinople. And all the leaders of the church come and they all say, okay, what's this guy Arius saying? Is it right? Is it wrong? And they all say, they repudiate Arius and they say, no, it is wrong. This is what the church believes. The creed is the statement of faith of the church articulating what the Bible says. Should I read it or should I move on? Okay, read it. Okay. So this is what they, this is what they say. They said, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son, Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, Arianism, of one being with the Father, Homoousius, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, and who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, meaning the, the Latin word for universal, so one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That is the essential statement of Christianity. It is not Scripture. It is not Scripture, but it is a chaperone for us to understand Scripture. Okay? Does that make sense? There's a, there's a big difference there. It is not authoritative, but it is a chaperone. So, <clears throat> that, the, so here's the short, short version. Arianism stuck around a little longer because of some political stuff, but ultimately it is repudiated, and it's going to be wiped out eventually. It sticks around a little longer because some missionaries went up into uh, Germany, er, the German area, like up in the Balkans, and they, uh, they, they proselytized the barbarian tribes and converted them all to... Uh, to, to uh, Arianism. So when the Franks and the Vandals and the Goths all invaded Western Europe, they were all Arians, bringing Arianism into Western Europe where it had never been before. It was mostly down in Egypt. So it took a while to work that out because now the church had, had less authority over you know, the barbarians because they were just saying, oh, you don't like that? <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> so, you know, it, it took a while to work it out. But with the councils and the draft and the formulation of the creed, the issue is, is essentially resolved. And now that paved the way for another ish set of issues to come up. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the day. And that's what Brandon was preaching on today, which is what we call the hypostatic union, which is the, the, the relationship between the human and the divine natures of Christ. And so, and again, this is the church trying to come to grips with what the Bible is teaching. And some people are going to uh, <clears throat> not have a full, they're not going to acknowledge the entirety of Scripture. There's always going to be something that they're going to say, I, I don't buy that. So, uh, the first big one that kind of popped up was Apollinarianism. And uh, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but suffice to say that they taught that Jesus had a human body, but he did not have a human mind, and that he was basically a flesh robot walking around that had the Logos, the Son of God, in his brain, that was his mind. So he was, he was like a remote-controlled person with the, with the Logos controlling him. The, the next big issue, though, the one that really kicks things off, is called Nestorianism, and it's just named after the guy that started teaching it, was named Nestorius. Now we're talking about the year A.D. 430. And what he is going to object to is the term theotokos, which in Greek means, it, it, it is a title for Mary. And in Greek, it means the God-bearer. Now, Nestorius fell into a trap, and we, we can't fall into that trap too. 
because he said, I don't like that. That's exalting Mary too much. She's the God-bearer. But in denying that Mary could not be the, the mother of God, he ends up radically separating the human and divine persons, and, and, and he is going, in effect, deny that is, is Jesus fully man, and is he fully God? By deny, if you say that Mary isn't the mother of God, then in some way you're denying the divinity of Christ. Does that make sense? I mean, that's the argumentation. And so to back that up, he's going to radically separate them out and say there were two totally different persons within the body of Christ. There was a divine person and there was a human person. There was no mixing of the two. So, and I know, so, so that's Nestorianism. The big problem is going to be the response to that. The pendulum is going to swing hard in the other direction. And there is the next big heresy is called monophysitism. And it literally, that, that is not taken from somebody's name. It means one nature. You can see the diagram for Nestorianism there where the human and divine persons of Christ are totally separated He's not fully God and fully man. He's two persons. Now, monophysitism is going to teach something different. I give the definition on, uh, I think that's page two. Uh, but there's a diagram for it. And the diagrams, I, I just want to acknowledge, I stole from uh, a professor named Wayne Grudem, uh, who teaches down at Phoenix Cemetery, uh, Seminary. Uh, so these are his drawings that I I didn't reproduce them, I redrew them but uh, using Photoshop, but they're his in, uh, in concept. So what the monophysites are going to say is that, oh no, there's, there's no separation between the human and divine natures of Christ. In fact, those are going to mix together to make a new third mysterious nature, a unique nature. So you can see the diagram kind of showing what that is. And the problem with that is if he is, if Christ is a unique being, which he is a unique being, but if he is a unique being in the sense that he has a unique nature that has never happened before, which is a mixture of human and divine, not fully man and fully God, but a mixture of the two, is that us on the cross, or is that something different? It's something different. That's the problem. And so the church is going to convene again, and they're going to draft a new creed, this one called the Chalcedonian Creed. Let me read this one to you. <clears throat> and this was drafted to repudiate both Nestorianism and Monophysitism. So both are being addressed here. We then, following the Holy Fathers, those are the ones who formulated the Nicene Creed, all with one consent teach people to confess one and the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, 
in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. So the Mother of God according to His humanity, not His divinity, but He is God. One and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Amen. So those two creeds are the bedrock of the church, whether you're Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant. And again, this is, I'm not going off the reservation here, this is something that Calvin affirms, that Spurgeon affirms, that R.C. Sproul affirms, that Chuck Swindoll affirms, that John MacArthur affirms. I mean, all of these guys, these are all, this is, this is all the bedrock. So, having seen how the church responded, now I actually want to go, guess what, to the Bible, and uh, let's talk about what we can see in the scriptures that they're looking at saying, okay, this is what the Bible is teaching us. Now, I just want to throw the caveat out there that, holy cow, is this a shorthand version of what the Bible says? So there is no way that I, in a couple hours last night, could give you guys an exhaustive uh, look at what the Bible says about this. But it's a start. So, <clears throat> on the... Is that the, are we on the fourth page? Okay, good. Uh, on the fourth page then, if you look at the notes, I, I work our way through first the Old Testament and then to the New Testament. That makes sense. So let's say, let's look at what the Old Testament says. And first there is uh, a number of types. And a, a type is... A typology is uh, the study of where the Old Testament has a representation of that which is coming in the New Testament. If any of you have ever been in any of my Sunday school classes, you have heard me say over and over again, uh, what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. That is an axiom of Bible study. Live it, know it, love it. Okay, so when you read the Old Testament... When you read the New Testament, what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So the types are things in the Old Testament that are showing us what is forthcoming. For example, a classic type is the binding of Isaac, where you have a father going to sacrifice his son to demonstrate his, you know, to, you know, you know the story. Uh, the Passover lamb is another type. Uh, 2 Samuel 9 with Mephibosheth and David is a type. So where 
where Mephibosheth by all rights should be dead because he is a descendant of Saul through Jonathan. Instead, David brings him to, and, he, and what is Mephibosheth? He's crippled. He's in his feet. He can do nothing for himself. We are Mephibosheth. And David says, you are going to sit at my table and you are going to dine with the king even though you should be dead. That is a type. It is showing the great, David is a type for Jesus Christ. He is showing the grace that, that Jesus has for us. And Mephibosheth is a type for us. And what does Mephibosheth say? He says, what is a dead dog like myself that I would dine at the table of the king? We are dead dogs before God. Without Jesus, we are dead dogs. So, those are types. Now, what's the point? The types in the Old Testament all indicate, when it, when it is looking at Christ and looking at the sacrifice, especially, holy cow, Leviticus, talking about the sacrifices, they're all looking towards a bodily, bloody sacrifice. A human, that, that human blood, it's looking forward towards when human blood shall be shed. So if Christ is not man, that those types are now void. So all of those things in the Old Testament that are pointing towards the sacrifice of man, of a man, for the atonement, are void if Jesus Christ is not God. There is also throughout the Old Testament a constant referral to the seed that will bring salvation. We see this first in Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelion, which just means the first good news, where right there at the moment of the fall, in the midst of the cursing, as it is happening in the garden, God says that the seed of the woman is coming, and that the serpent may bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. So, what who is going to crush the serpent's head? Is, is it, say, is it going to be God? No, it's, it says the seed of the woman. There is a humanity implied in that statement. But it goes on. Uh, the Davidic covenant says a descendant of David will sit on his throne forever. So does that, does that imply that it's that's not a person is going to sit on the throne of David? No, it means a descendant of David. And what is... Brandon talking about today, I mean, he starts with the genealogies in, the, in Luke and Matthew, and it's pretty well established that Jesus is a descendant of David. So there is a humanity there. And then a really interesting one, and again, these are just a few, but one of my favorites is if you look at Job 9, 32, 33. Job is, is talking about how he cannot be purified, how he cannot... Go before God and be purified. And he says, <clears throat> for he, God, he's referring to God. He, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to, to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So Job is recognizing that he, as a mortal man, cannot go before God and what he needs is someone who can stand between God and himself and put a hand on God and put a hand on a man and bridge that gap and arbitrate on his behalf before the Almighty God. Who's going to do that? Jesus Christ. Fully man, putting his hand on Job, and fully God, 
putting his hand on the Father. Does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, there is this expectation that there is going to be one who will bridge this gap. <clears throat> and it goes on. Moving into the New Testament, early on, you see in Luke, it's uh, at the beginning of Luke, and I, in 1, 31, 35, again, explicitly affirms the Old Testament expectation that the Messiah will be a man born of a woman. But then it starts to take on even more explicit understanding in the, uh, as you move into the, further into the New Testament. I list there in Hebrews 2.17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Like his brothers in every respect. Except for sin. We also see not only is he like us in form, physical form, but it says he, in Matthew that he has a human soul and in John that he has a human spirit. I mean, it says both things. It affirms he has a soul and it affirms that he has a spirit. What's the difference between soul and spirit? If you go back to Genesis, and this is, I don't have time to really delve into this, but I'll just, I know this is something that baffled me for a long time. But in Genesis, you have two Hebrew words that, that bring clarity to this question. You have nephesh and ruach. Nephesh means soul. That is who we are as a person. When we go to heaven, it is our nephesh, our soul, that is our personal spiritual identity will go to be with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in heaven. When God breathes his spirit into Adam, it is the Ruach, it is the Holy Spirit. It is, that is the life that we have been given. If, can that, does that make sense? Person, life, okay? Animals have spirit. They have been given the breath of life. They do not have a nephesh. Only those who are made in the image of God have a nephesh, have a soul. Does that make, there's an important distinction there. And you will also note, well, anyway, that's way too much rabbit trail for 15 minutes left. Um, <clears throat> so, and then... I really, I love this. I, I tried to do a, 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 a distinction here where it, the scripture affirms human limitations on Christ and then at the same time we see his divine attributes being expressed and they are in total opposite, in contrast to one another. As a man, Jesus grows weary and yet he calls all the weary to himself for rest. Human, God. He experienced hunger. He's the bread of life. And he fed multitudes. And he didn't just feed multitudes. He fed them abundant. So he feeds their souls and their stomachs. That's pretty good. He grew thirsty. He's human. He has frail limitations. He thirsts. He's the water of life. He was in agony. He healed the sick, and he soothes pain. 
He grew strong in spirit as he matured and as he grew up from a child. But what does John say? In the beginning was the Word. He was God from the very beginning. He was tempted, and yet as God, he could not be tempted. He was limited in his self, he self-limited his knowledge, but he was the very wisdom of God. He prayed, which is a distinctly human activity. No thing in the Bible prays except people. No demons, no angels. God's not praying unless you're talking about the fully human Son of God. So to pray is a human activity, but we also see that he answers prayers. And I could go on. You see the list. He dies, and he is eternal life. Fifth page. Any questions? Okay. I hope I'm not boring you guys. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Philippians 2 because Brandon is going to devote himself to that. And, and I think and it's very rich. The one thing that I want to mention, though, that helps draw some distinctions out. Let me... Give me a minute as I turn to Philippians here. And I am one of the slowest Bible page turners ever. You know, I should, people keep telling me I should use a, like a tablet or something. I just can't bring myself to do that. Because I recognize that I could get there faster. Um, so Philippians 2, which this whole passage is called the kenosis. It's another it's another theological term. It comes from the Greek word echinosin, which just means to empty. And uh, so this is the kenosis of the Son of God, where he empties himself. But in verse 7, it says, but emptied himself by taking, there's, there's a contrast here, and this is an important distinction, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, so here you have two words, form and servant, or and, and likeness. Now Brandon's going to talk more about that, but the word, one of the words, the word that, that's used first, the form of the servant, is homoima, likeness. And that is also used in Romans 8.3, and let me read that to you. So, I mean, you always, you look at how the words are used throughout Scripture, because Scripture is informing Scripture. So when Paul uses this word, what does he mean by that? So let's look at what he says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So, did he send his son as a sinner or in the likeness of sinful flesh? So, similar to the flesh, but not the same thing. Does that make sense? That's in contrast to the other word in verse 7 in, Philippi, in, in Philippians 2, where he says, being born into the likeness. So, you have a likeness and a form. I'm sorry, I'm getting myself confused now. You can see it in the notes, because now I'm getting my merds mixed. Uh, but there is a distinction where one is in the form of something or in the likeness of something, rather. There I go again. 
but lacking that attribute of sin. The other is being in the form of something and being fully that thing. Do you see how there's that? Paul is making a very subtle distinction in what he's saying. But it's a really important distinction because Christ is fully man in all ways like us, except without sin. So why does this matter? Why, why does it matter that, God, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? And there's a lot of reasons, and I'm going to list seven of them. But chief among them is so that the economy of salvation functions, so that we can be saved. If something that was not a man hung on the cross... Is that going to pay for the sins of humanity? No. So God's justice demand that we hang on that cross. And yet, if, if I hung on that cross, or any of you hung on that cross, are we... It wouldn't be the same. And do we have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to pay for the sins of everybody in this room? No. But does Jesus, as the Son of God, as God himself, does he have what it takes to pay for the sins of not just everyone in this room or in Mount Shasta, but, you know, throughout all history? Yes, he does. So there is an absolute necessity for him to be fully man to represent us on that cross so that what we are, he is, and he's hanging there. But also there is the absolute necessity that what we aren't and what we can't do, he is doing. So that's, that is, it, you cannot understate how important this is. And if you are a Nestorian, if you are a Monophysite, if you are an Arian, if you are, pick whatever other one that I've listed and there are others that I haven't talked about, that economy on the cross does not happen. So, here are some other reasons. Jesus Christ as a man is our representative in obedience to God, to the Father. Where Adam failed and was disobedient, Jesus Christ is obedient. Number two, or three, if you reckon from the first one. Uh, he is a mediator. Just as Job saw the need for one to put a hand on him and a hand on God and bridge that gap, Christ does that for us. Christ, as a man, will fulfill Adam's obligation to rule over the earth. Christ, as a man, sets the example for us in life, how we are to live. Not just how we are to be saved and so on, but just on a day-to-day level, on a practical application, he set the example. Uh, As a man, he gives us a pattern, a hope for, and a pattern in the resurrection he is a man who was raised from the dead and in his glorified body we see a glimpse of what our future will be 
And lastly, as a man, he is able to sympathize with us as our high priest. He is in the order of Melchizedek, and he is our high priest before God. And he is not some high priest off on his own who doesn't really know what we're dealing with day to day. He's lived it, and he sympathizes with us, and he knows our burden, and he is the great high priest and effective all the more because of it. So, lastly, I want to say we should not forget that Jesus Christ in the hypostatic union, the union that unites his divine nature and his human nature, he will be that for all eternity going forward from the incarnation. That he was taken up into heaven as a man. He was seen in heaven as a man. He has right now seated at the right hand of his, the Father. He has a hole in each of his hands and he has a spear wound in his side right now next to the Father. That should give us a great deal of hope that we too will also be in the presence of the Father in our exalted bodies for all eternity. Uh, so yeah, I'm not going to go into this last heresy. Well, I'll just say it really quick, but it's kind of anticlimactic. Uh, yeah, let, let me just mention this really quick. So <clears throat> after the creeds were formulated, false teaching persisted, but the church knew what the right road was. And there are going to be, so we say, less spiritually enlightened people that are, were in positions of power that are going to try to force compromise between two parties that cannot compromise. Specifically, there are going to be Roman emperors who want unity in their empire. By now, they're starting to be called Byzantine Empire emperors because it is in the Eastern Roman Empire. And they want unity between the church and the Monophysites. And so they're going to try to force compromises. And the most marginally successful one, because the none of them were successful, was called monothelitism. Um, get, there's a point to this. I'm not just leaving you hanging with this one more big word. So he they were trying to find a compromise between those who said that Christ was fully man and fully God, and those who said that Christ was a mix of human and God, but it was a new, unique thing. That's the Monophysites. And so they said, well, hey, how about this? Can everybody at least just say that Christ was fully man and fully God, but he only had one will. His will was one, so that the, the church could say, yes, fully man, fully God, and the Monophysites could say, oh, yes, there was that unique unity there that, uh, you know, that was a new thing. And ultimately, that too is going to fall apart because, I mean, and there's a lot of reasons why that is. And, uh, but one of them is, if, if his will is not, if, he did, if, God, if Christ does not have a fully human and fully divine will, if his divine will sends him to the cross, because the divine must consume the human if they are mixing and merging, 
if, if his divine will sends Christ to the cross, is that a man willingly going to the cross to die for our sins? No, it's not. So I would, I would ask you then to look here at the end at Matthew 26, 39. I, I, this is one of my favorite glimpses of Christ. This is where his, his humanity is, is on display <clears throat> in a very powerful way. And he's <clears throat> it says, And going a little further, he fell on his face and praying that a divine activity or a human activity, human activity. He fell on his face. I lost my place. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And there you see the human will of Christ. His will was to have this cup. The, the sins of the world being slammed down on him in death. To have that cup pass from him. But ultimately, in his humanity, he submits to the will of the Father. As should we all. And with that in mind, in closing, as a prayer, I would like to read the benediction, or the the benediction at the end of Hebrews. <clears throat> if you will either just bow your heads or read along with me. Keep in mind that will. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen uh thank you all and just in closing i just want to say thank you to brandon and